Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. Today, my guest is Liz Eddy. Liz Eddy and I met at Experience Camps, a free one-week camp for kids ages 9 to 16 that have lost a loved one. Liz was previously the Director of Communications at Crisis Text Line. At Crisis Text Line, they do amazing things. They are a nonprofit providing free 24-7 crisis intervention all via text. In this podcast, we actually talk about some of the incredible moments that that organization has had, and it is just amazing. She is now the co-founder and CEO of Lantern. And at Lantern, they are working on some very awesome things. Lantern offers free custom roadmaps to make sure your loved one has everything in order post-death. Whether you're pre-planning or recently lost someone, Lantern has all of the tools, resources, and services you need to confidently manage the situation while processing the loss of a loved one. In this podcast, we dive into Liz's journey and her loss and what her journey was, continues to be following the death of her her dad and life after. And one of the really interesting things that we dive into on this podcast is how she's continued to really pave a way for her to live a life of purpose, using her past experiences to drive that. It was a very interesting conversation learning about how she's used her past experience to really, really create both a career and a life filled with purpose. So tune in, enjoy, and make sure to leave a review at then. Thanks for listening as always. I know what you mean, depending on like the circle I'm in, maybe like I share more, share less. When I was with Ethan, this is going back like a few years when the dinner party first started, Ethan and I were like, oh, let's let's go to the dinner party and we went did you ever go to one of those dinners yeah, you hosted one, I've, no? host, I've hosted a couple of different dinners and then I've also like been to them and I've had like very mixed experiences <laughs> yeah it was funny because Ethan and I were like we've shared our story now so many times at camp that it was so easy for us to like share our story and for a lot of the people at least the, we only did one maybe two um but both times, I'd say like the people that were in the group, it was their first time maybe ever sharing their story. So we were like the leaders, we were like the the clinicians, and we're like, we're not clinicians. And um, we didn't even really share our story. We were just like, wow, thanks so much for sharing your story and like trying to like dig to get more out of it was like such a bizarre experience oh, in that regard. And we wow. were like, yeah. I think the experience camps kind of is our dinner party. Like that's where we we've like grown and learned and become more empathetic human beings towards others experiences and learned how to talk about them in a different way. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I guess going to camp and like being in that setting, you end up sharing your story so many times over the years over the week and see so many other people share their stories that like, I feel like by definitely if not like the first summer by summer three, you're just like more, it's more natural. It's not so difficult, maybe or it still can be difficult, but like you're able to more fluently, like share your story. Yeah, exactly. So, so with that. <laughs> my story, as I said, I'm like, where does it begin? Is it when you're like, when I was born or <laughs> at age nine <laughs> or at age 22? Or like, yeah, there's so many different versions. But I think, you know, for the two of us, especially having known each other, I don't know that I've ever gone like way back into the story. <laughs> so I'll just start with, you know, I was born in New Jersey and to two amazing parents who were madly in love and wild and interesting in all the right ways. My mom's an artist and my dad worked in like building management in New York, but they bought this old house in New Jersey that was the potting shed of Thomas Edison and it had you know dirt floors and no central air and heat. And they're like, you know what we're going to do in our 20s with a baby? We're going to renovate this place. <laughs> and <laughs> 
that was kind of the the lifestyle that I grew up in. It's like my mom hand painted all the tiles on the floor, and my dad had an old sports car that he you know took apart and put back together in the garage. And it was very like creative and loving. And uh, there's always huge dinner parties with lots of friends and neighbors. So even though I was only child, I grew up in this very community oriented environment. But my dad, he got sick um, the first time, I think when I was about five. I don't really remember life where he, he wasn't, unfortunately. He was diagnosed with cancer, and he was in his 30s when he was diagnosed, so really young, and um, went through a series of treatments and, um, and basically you know, came out the other side saying he was clear and good. And then less than a year later, the cancer came back, and it was chemo-resistant. And just a totally like sort of different beast of a situation to the point where my mom and dad were sitting in a doctor's office talking to one of the leading experts on my dad's type of cancer, which is extremely rare. And my mom was on, this is in the 90s. My mom went online and was not even, I mean, I wasn't even Googling. I don't know how she was searching for it, trying to find information about this cancer and about treatments. And she came into the doctor's office with a stack of papers that she had printed out in her home printer. And so this is all the research I found. And they start flipping through it. And I was like, I found this experimental drug in Ireland. And as they were walking out, the doctor pulled my mom aside and he said, hey, can I photocopy these? So like oh this was, <laughs> it was research that they hadn't even seen before. And, um, and my mom really quickly realized like they were on their own with this and they needed to, to start making decisions. And so she found this experimental drug in Ireland and we were on a plane uh, with my grandmother and my dad on oxygen and went to Ireland where he started this experimental drug called Anverzel, which is, is still out there. It's not FDA approved still, but it gave him, you know, many additional years to his life. And that was such a gift. You know, it didn't end up curing his cancer and he did end up passing away in 1999, but it gave him not just years back, but years of he got a boat and he took me camping oh my god yeah that's crazy yeah i didn't know any of that yeah yeah and so i actually have a tattoo on my side that's in gaelic and it says may the road rise to meet you which is you know like a very sort of traditional gaelic prayer it's actually often said in like catholic mass uh like funerals but to me it always stuck with me because the night before my dad started these treatments his doctor in Ireland took my family to dinner because it was literally like a small town. It was a dare Ireland, small town, small town doctor who's one of the few approved to administer this drug. And he took us out with his family and he did a, a toast, which was may the road rise to meet you, may the wind always be at your back. And it, I mean, I was you know eight at the time, but that always was just such a powerful statement to me. How long were you there for? We were there on and off. Uh, my mom was there a lot more. Uh, my dad initially had to do the treatments in Ireland, and then we got approval to bring for my mom to go pick up the drugs and bring them back to Connecticut, where we were then living at that point, to be near my grandmother and grandfather. But my mom was literally like uh, an approved drug smuggler. At one point. Oh my god! So, how many years did that go on for? It wasn't very long. He was, you know, it was between, I think it was, my memory's a little blurred, but like 97 to 99. That's one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. Like, I didn't I didn't know that at all. <laughs> so when you first went out there, were you home in like a few days or you were there for a few months? We were there like on and off a few weeks at a time. My grandmother was with me. And so she sort of like normalized my lifestyle while we were there. I wasn't in school. I, I did a lot of like, in and out of being in school at that time, which is like in hindsight kind of funny because there's a lot of like core things you learn in elementary school that I don't know how to do, like cursive and long division. Like I just never learned it. And in elementary school, when you have a terminally ill father, they don't really push you if you're not there. Yeah. And so, yeah, I missed a lot of like- What, what else can you do? <laughs> I know in the reverse, I know a ton about clouds because- I was jumping around to different schools and different classes and I kept learning about clouds for some reason. I'm like, tell <laughs> about the Nimbus class. <laughs> I'm like, you know. Well, you just had like an alternative education. Yeah, yeah. And I kept a lot of journals, which are very funny to read now. I had a different kind of learning experience though. Like I think that time frame made me a lot more independent, a lot more resilient, a lot more like culturally aware. It was my first time out of the country was you know, to go do this. And 
you know, meet other kids that are from other environments. And, you know, it definitely shaped me. So when your dad was sick, were you like aware of what was going on? I was. And, you know, it, it's like hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? <laughs> but like, yeah. I, I don't really, I remember knowing he was sick and knowing that our family situation was different and knowing that my mom was really stressed and having a hard time. But looking back on it, I realized that there were like certain behaviors that were not normal of a kid that age, but I didn't know like why they were happening. Like I used to um, incessantly wash my hands, which is like in this day and age, everyone's like high fives on that. But you know, <laughs> when, uh, when there isn't a, a pandemic going on, I, I would wash my hands all the time. And I, you know, I think some people might, might've said like, oh, maybe that's like a, a compulsive disorder of some kind. And after my dad passed away, I stopped doing it. And I've realized now getting older that I think there was a piece of me that thought I was going to get sick and thought that mm. I was going to get it somehow. And I just didn't understand like how cancer worked or like, I thought like my dad had, you know, when you're a kid, you learn like, Oh, wash your hands and then you don't get sick. And so I think yeah. I equated that and was like, Oh, my dad must not have washed his hands really well. So <sighs> I need to make sure I do that. But I, I would say like, you know, I, I listened to the podcast with Sunil too. And it's, it's interesting. I think I imagine there's kind of this underlying thread of like, when you're a kid going through this stuff, you kind of just accept your normal. And like, that is your normal. You don't know what different is. And even with like, you know, going to friends' houses, there was always, of course, like some envy and maybe in the back of my mind of like, you know, stability or like more siblings. Like that was something I was always aware of as I was an only child. So wanted more siblings. Um, but for the most part, I, I just was like, yeah, my parents are awesome and I have a great life and they take really good care of me and we have fun and love each other. And at the end of the day, like if you can have two parents that really love each other, like you're winning. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely becomes your, whatever your situation is, I feel like it does become your normal. Just like how if you lose one parent, that eventually becomes your new normal. If you lose two, that eventually becomes your new normal and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. I guess following your dad's death, like as you got older, more from like maybe childhood to teenager to like high school, college, etc. What would you say? Like, how did that impact? I guess just like growing up. Mm hmm. I always thought I was like really unique in my experience until actually going to experience camps um, and learning that uh, there's actually a lot of kind of standardized things that happen depending on the age of, of loss. And for me, when I, you know, my dad passed away, I immediately just wanted things to be as normal as possible. So I like some people might have thought it was strange, but, you know, two days after my dad passed away, I wanted to go have a sleepover at my friend's house. And like, Turns out that's super normal for kids that age. It's like they just want to feel like in their routine. They want to feel like their life is normal and stabilized. And then it kind of crops up over time and that grief comes to you at a later point. And, and for me, it was when I went to college. That was when all of a sudden I, like everything just sort of uprooted. And I think it was because it was the first time that I had like a feeling of abandonment, not that like I was abandoned at college, but it was, you know, it was this experience of going from stability and home and family and familiarity to all of a sudden being in an environment where all of that is stripped away all at once. And I think it triggered something in my mind to go back to that feeling of being uprooted and having all of what's normal and familiar be stripped away. And so I went, I went to Syracuse for my first semester of college and I was there for, I don't know, about two weeks. And I just like all of my normal behaviors, like I'm typically very optimistic and very outgoing. And like, I love to eat and socialize. And like, those are all that's just like who I am. I love to sleep. Like, it's, you know, things that are like the basic, like, this is who I am. And I know this all of a sudden reversed. And it was like, I either wasn't sleeping or couldn't wake up. I wasn't hungry. I couldn't eat anything. I was losing weight really quickly. I didn't want to socialize. I had no interest in classes, which is like just not who I am. Like I love to learn. I just did a master's degree that it was mostly because I'm just passionate about learning things. And, you know, all of these things that I, I so deeply like know about myself reversed. And, and I went to see a therapist and they basically said that I was sort of like, re-experiencing grief and that it, you know, that this experience had brought this back up again and made the decision to take time for myself to 
to you know kind of work through what I was going through and also try to figure out what the right next place for me is. So I ended up leaving Syracuse and taking that semester off and kind of reevaluating and figuring out like what what is my place in the world? What what school feels right to me? I luckily was really privileged in that my mom was very and my stepdad were very supportive of that decision and I had a place to go home to and all of those things. And, mm. um, and took the time to really work through it and ended up transferring schools to go to Parsons in Manhattan. And it was such a good decision. Like I needed to really work through what those triggering feelings were and, and also maybe like slowly separate versus like fully throwing myself off the deep end <laughs> into yeah. everything being new. And I was very comfortable in at home in New York city. Cause that's, you know, I grew up right outside of it. That's great that you knew yourself like, so like well enough to, I guess, make that decision to take some time off from school to figure out like, you know, I guess just really to take care of yourself, you know? Yeah, it was not an easy decision. I definitely for a year or two after kind of always felt like I was behind in some way. But I remember a a friend of mine kind of putting it into perspective. She was like, you're an adult, there is no behind. Like you're on <laughs> you're on your own your own schedule. <laughs> like this yeah, is, absolutely. You're not a kid anymore. It's not like you got you're not being held back. You're not like you're living your life. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure, I mean probably I would imagine now looking backwards, you probably have like a lot of life lessons from that experience of leaving Syracuse, taking some time off and like working on yourself and just making sure that like you yourself are are okay. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even just like, you know, baseline, like grief aside, if you're not ready to go to college, it is such a privilege and a gift to be able to have a higher education and like wasting your time in it and whatever it is. Like I I realized after the fact that like, yeah, I could have pushed myself along and been a subpar student and been kind of miserable and like maybe figured it out along the way. But like at what cost, right? Like you're spending a fortune to be at school. And I so much like prefer being like going back and being really focused and engaged and excited about being where I was. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking about this to someone else, but like the school system here, like without getting into it in too too much detail, but like I definitely think that it's so bizarre. Like you go to middle school, you go to high school, you go to college, you get a job, and that's just sort of like the train of thought. It's funny for me, I also had kind of a bizarre college experience a little bit different but I started at Bentley after like two weeks I was like I need to get out of here this isn't where I want to be I applied to Syracuse that's really where I wanted to go (laughs) didn't get in was like hysterical that was the first time ever when I thought like at the time I guess that's when I was like the world's crashing down on me and this is the first time I was facing some real like adversity and it's really funny like I remember crying to my mom because I didn't get into Syracuse my grades sucked. And I was like, I'm going to be stuck at the school for the next two years until I can like reapply. And the guidance counselor at Bentley had told me, don't apply like your grades aren't good enough, work on your grades, and then you'll get out of here after like a year. But I was like, I can't I can't like I really didn't I really did not enjoy that school. And I got rejected. It was like the worst at the time, the worst moment of my life. And I called my mom hysterical. And I was like, I'm going to be stuck at this school forever. And she's like, stop crying. This isn't like a real problem. And then I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, I can't go, like, I'm, I'm stuck here. And she's like, a real problem is, is like being sick with cancer. At the time, one of our good family friends, their son had to drop out of college because he was diagnosed with cancer. And thank God he's, he's okay, like to this day. But I guess funny looking, looking backwards now, both my parents died from cancer. And yeah. at the time, that was the greatest, the greatest, uh, like adversity that I was facing or that I had faced. And now it's like, oh, she was totally right. That's just like real problems. But um, yeah, and it's it's funny. My dad, I did not want to, after my dad got sick, I was like, I'm done with school. I want to get out of here and just start working. And I really shifted into this mindset where I wanted to just take care of my mom. And um, my dad, up until the point when he died, he was so insistent that I had to finish school. I guess I think it's funny because I think a lot of people, whether it go, be like going to college or after college, like going right away into the working world, I don't think are necessarily like prepared, ready, or just like there's so much in life to experience. And I think it's interesting how people outside of like the US, I know a lot of people in like Europe, Australia, I have a lot of family in Israel, like after college, they 
like traveled the world before getting a job and like just got a lot more life experience before entering the working world. Yeah, that's what my boyfriend did. He saved up and he spent time traveling before he started a job. And, you know, you have to really like bust your butt to be able to have those kind of situations work out for you. But if you can, it's like when else in life do you get the opportunity to do those kind of things? And and it's the same thing with going to college. Like I, I think it, it's really bizarre to me that we enforce a uh, like young people to make these major life decisions about their uh, career trajectory and where they want to live and all these things when they've never like a lot of kids that go to college have never had a real job or they, you know, or the job they've had has been part-time or it's babysitting or like, you know, something that, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're being responsible, but you know, they don't, they don't actually know the day in day out of, of working in the, the industry that they're interested in. Yeah. It's funny also just on that note, it's funny that even in college you need to pick like a major and a career trajectory. And it's just like, Oh my God, I switched schools. I switched majors like eight times. I switched schools once and at this point in my professional career I've done like 10 things. So it's just funny how it's like oh like I love when you meet someone who like just started college and they're like oh I'm going to be like I'm going to do X. I even think it's funny with like your first job. I feel like society puts a lot of pressure on you. Like what's your job? What are you doing? And it's just like most likely like the job you start with will not be your last job. You probably will end up in a different industry and you'll probably move around quite a bit. Yeah, and you can be you can be so many different things. <laughs> like that's kind of the magic of it is you know it's it, you kind of learn and evolve. You don't have to stay on this this one trajectory. Yeah. So in terms of it sounds like so you took that semester off, and then I guess I'm curious while you were taking that time off, what were you doing to I guess work on yourself or like how did you sort of get out of where you were in that moment in time? <laughs> It went in phases. Um, I'd say phase one was feel sorry for myself. I definitely took like a, a couple of weeks to be at home and sort of, you know, cry and complain to my mom and say, I don't understand what's wrong with me and all these kind of things. And I ended up going to a therapist, which like, I so wish I could say that was a great experience, but it really, it really wasn't. I think therapy is a wonderful, wonderful thing, but I just so happened to get a therapist that was very kind of forgetful and um like she missed multiple sessions with me and forgot about them and like it's just not a good scenario and and luckily I had a really good support system so I didn't like take it personally I think in some circumstances that could have been really heart-wrenching to have like someone you're paying forget about you <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I did not take it personally so you know honestly what I ended up doing was that really helped me heal was channeling my energy into things that I was really passionate about and cared about. And at the time, that was school. So it was focusing on figuring out how I could keep learning and feeling engaged and, and figuring out what school I wanted to be in. And then it was working. I worked at a clothing store. I thought for a long time I wanted to be a fashion designer. And I got my first real crack at running a clothing store because this a woman who's a friend of my mom's ran a small boutique in our town and she was pregnant and going on maternity leave. And so she sort of trained me to, to manage the store and she was, you know, managing it remotely after her um, son was born. And so I got to like, you know, at 18, literally like be in the store by myself and work with customers and merchandise and figure out inventory. And, and that was like really exciting to me because I got to really see what what something like a job like this could be like. And that to me has always been what has helped me heal and what's helped me through times of, of heavier grief has been really like focusing my energy into things I really care about. And and that's evolved over time. Like it's never been the same thing. But if I can channel my energy into either my work or training for a half marathon or you know, volunteering with experience camps and just feeling like I have purpose. It's always been the most healing thing. So that's sort of been the way that you've, I guess, moved forward with like your your grief. That's sort of been like your yeah. tool or tactic that you've carried with you. Yeah, it definitely has. I also just like, I feel a really strong sense of pride when I feel productive. And I think that's true for a lot of people that are sort of like type A personalities like me. It's like, if I can get through a day and I feel like I like really crushed what I was trying to do, whatever that is, like big or small, it gives me this sort of sense of stability. 
Got it. That's awesome. And makes complete sense. I feel, yeah, definitely. I've had very similar experiences in the sense that not just as it relates to like significant loss, but I feel like anytime that I'm personally in like a, a bad state, finding something to sink my energy into where I can go like all in gets like my mind on something else and something positive to focus on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of life after college, what did that look like for you? Yeah. So I had like kind of a, a wild turn of events and I, you know, I, I know you and I both have talked about how we like hate the phrasing of like all things happen for a reason. It's like the worst phrase, <laughs> but, um, but when it comes to like my career path, it like, it feels very full circle and how so many things happened. Um, I had been running a, a nonprofit since I was 15, helping educate young people about dating abuse and domestic violence. And I continued doing that in college. And what made you want to start that at 15? A family member, again, personal experience, you know, that tends to be kind of my driver, either just sort of seeing what's happening to to people around me or things in the news and, and trying to kind of problem solve as to like, how, how can I use my skill set and my community and my connections to make at least a dent in an issue? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I feel like a lot of people listening to this are going to be like, okay, how do you start a nonprofit at 15? <laughs> um, I, mostly by accident and haphazardly. <laughs> uh, I, it initially started in my high school. A, I was in like this like super nerdy part of our, our high school curriculum called Civics and Government Institute, which is basically like an opt-in track for history and English where you learn everything about the government. And we had to do a, a school or a class project. We had to pick a some kind of nonprofit to work with. And I raised my hand and said, I, I, you know, I think we should do something with domestic violence and dating abuse. It affects one in three young people. And, you know, we don't have any education on the topic. It's sort of, you know, it's taboo. People don't feel comfortable discussing it. And my classmates had no interest. So like it was just crickets <laughs> and, and my two best friends are sitting next to me and they were like, well, why don't we just do something the three of us? And you know, like, let's see if we can come up with something on our own. We don't need them. And so we came up with the idea to do a fashion show fundraiser because I was very into to fashion and we thought it would be a fun way to raise money and also get people kind of talking about a serious topic in a, in a lighter environment. And so we did one fundraiser and all of a sudden it just started snowballing. Like we, it turned into an organization in our school where we were doing like curriculum and education for our, our classmates. And then the state of New Jersey picked it up and then it was started spreading to universities and high schools on the East coast. And then we had the UK and Turkey and like all these oh different God. countries reaching out saying they wanted to, you know, kind of follow the, the curriculum we set up. And it was um, it was really wild. We were working with people, you know, twice our age through you know, developing this organization. It's still running, so it's been running half my life. And my two co-founders and I haven't been involved in quite some time, but it's still going. They're still raising money for um, domestic violence shelters all over the country. And and I carried it through to college. And a girl in my class worked for the dean's office and she she passed it along to the board of directors and board of trustees of the school and one of the women on the board is the founder of dress for success and then was the ceo of do something.org and she reached out to me and said you know i know what you're doing with your organization and do something is being honored for our work um, on teen dating abuse would you want to be my plus one to this awards dinner and i was like what like I, I was completely mind blown that someone as successful as her had any interest in in meeting me, let alone like having me go to an event with her. And we ended up really hitting it off. And she convinced me to take an internship at Do Something, which is not in fashion. <laughs> um, it's cause campaigns for young people. And I had had some like sort of mixed feelings about fashion at that point anyway. And so I went and took this internship. And really loved it, loved the environment, loved the social action. I kind of felt like I'd found my people. Like it was all like young people in their in their 20s who were like really trying to change the world and deeply passionate about it and applied for a job in business development. And while I was sitting in the interview, Nancy, who's the, who was the CEO then of Do Something, came in and she said, hey, like I need to hire an executive assistant. It's not a glamorous job, but you'll learn the ins and outs of running an organization. And I will make sure that you get to do 
whatever you want to do after two years of working with me. I, I thought she was an amazing human anyway. And was like, well, this is going to be fascinating. Like she's such a successful leader. I knew I wanted to run something on my own at some point. And so I took the job and ended up on a seven year wild ride with her. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a really, one of the more, I think, important decisions of my life was deciding to be her executive assistant. That's crazy. So that was seven years. That was seven years of your life. Yeah. So, and and that seven years evolved. Like I, I was her executive assistant initially and Literally, I think like while I was still an intern, she did her first TED talk um, about a company called Crisis Text Line. And the whole idea was to create a free 24-7 crisis support service through SMS so that young people could reach crisis support because we knew they weren't using the hotlines anymore. And SMS was the way that young people were the most comfortable communicating. And so she did this TED talk basically saying like that technology could be more powerful than penicillin. And and what does that really mean? And I watched the TED Talk and, you know, had heard rumblings about it as an intern. And when I started working with her, I said, hey, you know, I'd love to help in any way I can make Crisis Text Line happen. And she was like, great, cool. Like, that'll be one of your projects is, is helping do, you know, like early research. And I was doing like user testing. And I was, you know, at a couple of universities, like seeing how young people were using the service and, you know, just kind of putting my hands wherever I could. And at that time, I'd started to really realize that like my strong suit was in communications. And that was what I loved, just like comms and and partnerships. And so when it came time to actually get Crisis Text Line out there, she suggested that I um, help develop the go-to-market strategy. And she's like, it's perfect. You know, you're in your early 20s. You're exactly in our target demo. Like, where do you think this should show up? And how do you think we should launch it? And so I developed this go-to-market strategy that would have us on the ground in Chicago and El Paso, two very different uh, cities to really learn about, you know, how a text line would be used there and went door to door, literally like to all the like high schools, universities, uh, health officials, community groups, letting them know that crisis text line was launching and available. And uh, we launched. And then within three months, we were in every area code in the U S and, you know, as time evolved, I ended up taking on more and more responsibility and then eventually became the director of communications for the organization and oversaw all of our brand, comms, PR, strategic was, partnerships, business development. The whole thing. Was she the founder of Crisis Text Line? Yeah. So when I went on as director of communications, she moved over as full-time CEO of Crisis Text Line. So it started out as, as six of us. And then when I left, we were about 140 employees and about 12,000 crisis counselors. We launched in five countries. Yeah, yeah. I feel like most people know about or know of Crisis Text Line, maybe at this point. I'm not sure. Like, I feel like I've seen it so many places. It could just be that I'm connected with you and I know that you were there for some time. What was like the most impactful thing? And I'm sure like you have a lot of stories from working there, but what would you say was like the most impactful thing that happened while you were there? Oh, man. Or is it too many uh, to count? <laughs> I mean, you guys have, uh, if you go to the website, yeah. I know there's a lot of incredible data that you guys have. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are so many stories of you know really incredible things that have happened. The only ones we can share are the ones that have been in, in mass media. But one of them, we actually stopped a, a, um, a mass shooter on Christmas Eve. We were able to intervene before it happened. The shooter reached out and was then found doing exactly what he said he was doing. So it was, yeah, like a really incredible moment of intervention that allowed to stop, you know, a lot of grief and loss. Mm. It's so interesting to me that when you took the time off from college to like work on yourself and the way you coped with your grief was finding things you're passionate about and doing things that gave you purpose or things that you could sink your energy into. I guess it's just funny hearing you speak sort of around your career, everything, including what you're working on now, which we'll get to next, is so focused around like making a positive dent in the world and having this like incredible impact. So it's interesting to hear how you went from like a apparel to and fashion to, you know, all these really impactful businesses that make such a positive impact in the world. Yeah. And I think like one of the, I was trying, I've been trying to figure out like what the underlying thread is and all of it. And 
I've always taken a really deep interest in topics that people don't like to talk about. And I truly do think part of it is from having loss at a young age. I'm inherently more comfortable talking about hard things. And it makes me feel very comfortable talking about domestic violence and dating abuse or suicide or, you know, grief and loss. Um, because I think just like uncomfortable conversations have always been a part of my life. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I also recognize that those tend to be the least resource topics because they're, you know, they're less sexy, they're harder to talk about, you know, it's just, it kind of comes to the territory. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So maybe now you could tell everyone what you're working on now and sort of how that came about just as we continue on with your pretty incredible professional career and all the impact <laughs> you've had. <laughs> Yeah. So um, about two years ago, I was still working at Crisis Text Line and I was managing the end of life of my grandmother, who's in her late 90s. And, uh, you know, it was a, a loss that we knew was coming. There was no there was no question or doubt about it. Doesn't make it easier, but at least makes you a little bit more prepared. And, you know, I was working a full time job and my mom and I were splitting, going back and forth to Connecticut where she was in a nursing facility. And right after the holidays, my mom went out to Colorado where she lives half the year. And it just so happened to coincide to the time when my grandmother started going really downhill. And I got a phone call on a Saturday morning asking that I come up to the nursing facility where she was living. And I was met by two police officers and nurse and her body. And they looked at me and said, what do you want to do? And I was so unprepared. Like for someone who knew that my grandmother was going to die and that I was responsible, I was like clueless as to even what the first thing was to be done. And and I ended up pulling out my cell phone and Googling, what do you do when someone dies? Like I just, I had no idea and was met by a lot of, you know, old articles and outdated research and products that like sort of responded to pieces of the process and ended up calling a bunch of funeral homes in the area, which oddly enough, like even that scenario, you don't, I didn't even know what to say. Like I got on the phone with the funeral home and I was like, I don't even know how to start this conversation. (laughs) Like, what do I, what am I asking for? You know, and that was kind of, you know, the first 24 hours was jumping on and off of being on the phone with police and, and nurses. And because she died at home, they, you know, they had to do they technically have to have police there to make sure there was no kind of foul play, even though she was 96 and there was no question about it. But, you know, there's a lot of steps that should be taken. And my mom was frantically trying to get back to the East Coast in this process. And we sort of like just clamored it together. Like my mom and I were, you know, finding paperwork around the house and kind of guessing on what account she had and had no idea what she wanted to do with most of her belongings and uh, just sort of guessing our way through the process, which is very stressful for anyone that's been through it to not really know like what you're supposed to be doing and when and also like being surprised by a lot of stuff like I didn't know until six months after my grandmother passed away that she had a Verizon account because debt collectors were harassing me like I just had no (laughs) idea and um, and that's kind of that's like the normal story you know there's just all these loose ends and you never know what done is you don't want know who expects what of you and we're never as prepared as we think we are even if like my grandmother technically had done all of her end of life planning, you know, she, she had a will and she had her uh, do not resuscitate order. And like, she had technically all the things done and still it was just total mayhem. And I left, you know, a few days after that and went over to my, uh, my best friend's house who was previously a coworker and is now my (laughs) co-founder and, uh, and said to her, like, we've got to do something about death. Like this is just what were you guys doing at the time? My my co founder and I. Yeah, we were just friends at the time. Were you were you working still or you're? Yeah, I was working at Crisis Text Line, and she was working for. I think at the time she was working for Global Citizen, and she's a really brilliant systems thinker and product thinker. And we started hashing out like, okay, this is the process that we've gone through. And she was, she was my support system through it as well. Like, you know, I was constantly talking to her about like the nonsense of what was happening and that one funeral home called me 36 times in two days trying to sell me things. Like, you know, it's just, it's, it's a brutal process. And, and you know, after some time had passed, we really started saying like, Hey, like, you know, I think we're onto something here. Like there's, there's something bigger at play that the technology hasn't responded to. This industry is 
really old school and not in a good way. Um, it, it could really be positively impacted by, you know, a smarter technological solution mixed with, you know, empathy and human power, which I think is always the most powerful products. And, um, and so we spent a few months doing a lot of market and user research, um, really understanding what had been done, what was currently out there and, and what our place in this was, if anything. And what we realized is that the entire space, whether you are pre-planning for your own death or you're trying to find hospice care or even like in-home care or senior living, like, you know, just anything with end of life through the funeral planning and then all of the logistics that come after a loss, which is like the forgotten period, right? Mm -hmm. Like after the funeral is done and then all of a sudden you have a house and a car and all their belongings and all their accounts and, you know, all this other stuff that is just sort of like, all right, good luck, figure that out. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. And then, you know, and then the grief counseling and support and the way that technology and tech companies have responded to that at this point has been small builds to respond to pieces of that process. And you and I both know when you're going through this process, having 35 different accounts with 35 different logins to do 35 different things is (laughs) not only like crazy, but it's unrealistic. Like you're just, you're not going to do it. You might use one or two, but you're going to kind of just like hash it together however you can. And that's what, how it's going to be. And it's growing, but it hasn't had a leader. And, um, and so we realized like our, one of our biggest early insights was like, it's not 35 different experiences. It's my grandmother died. It's my mom died. It's my dad died. That's the experience. That's what the user sees. They don't see all of these different funnels and segments. And so we set out to build a product that could basically be the umbrella over the whole process. And we would either build products ourselves or point to best in class options to walk you through every step of the process. What does that look like today? So right now we cover end of life planning. So that is not just legal documentation, but also things like your end of life wishes, where your possessions are, uh, password storage and digital legacy, documenting your history, you know, all of the different kind of aspects of an end of life plan. And then we also do post-loss. So we help you with funeral arrangements. We help you with logistics after a funeral. We walk you through kind of the basics of grief and loss. And that is starting to expand and broaden over time. Um, we're introducing things like helping navigate you know, life insurance, finding funeral homes um, and cremation services, after starting to look into you know, support through, uh, through hospice as well. What would you say the vision is for like five years down the road? When you have a question about end of life, you think of Lantern. Got it. I like that. Big, big goals. Yeah, it's a crazy process. I mean, my mom died over a year ago and we're still not by any means done going through everything. I mean, even there's still things also, I don't know if this is something you help with today or if it's something you see helping with down the road, but Logins thing is very, there's things as relate to insurance, taxes, whatever it may be, where you call and it's like, you need the person to, like, I need your mom permission so I can speak with you. And then you're like, my mom's dead. I don't know what you want to do. And they're like, well, you need to fill in this form. You need to mail it to us. I'll mail it back to you. And it really is a very broken system that takes, I mean, it's over a year and like, we're still working through details of several things. Oh, yeah. I hear stories about that all the time. And I mean, the the best way to avoid it is to pre-plan. Like, I mean, that's the biggest thing that we push forward as a company is if you really want to make sure the process is easy for your families, like make sure you have that stuff organized in advance. And that might be, you know, making sure that they have access to a password vault or um, a lot of companies allow you to have a beneficiary. So you list another person as a secondary if you pass away, which makes the process a lot easier. But the reality is most people don't do that. And it's not it's not for any other reason than I think it hasn't been that easy to do. I think you know, we're seeing now about 80% of our users are pre-planners and a lot of them are in their 30s and 40s. And I, I truly think that like this belief system that you know Americans aren't comfortable talking about death or don't want to pre-plan is, is certainly true for a good number of people. But I think beyond that, it's that we haven't made it easy for you to do it. <laughs> like, you know, it's like the people that are pre-planning, what are they doing? They're 
writing their passwords in the back of their favorite book on their bookshelf and then putting together a binder and sticking it in the hall closet. Like it's just it's not <laughs> an effective way to do it. Are there any big wins that you would want to share? It's always tricky for us to call certain things wins because our growth and our you know ability to reach more people is so dependent on like loss and grief and also like yeah. stress and anxiety and you know like a lot of those things. So it's not, I, I think our wins are when we, we see that we have made the process profoundly easier for someone. And we hear that almost every day. So for example, we had a woman reach out and she said, you've made pre-planning angst-free, which is crazy. I'd say that's a pretty big win. Yeah. Like that is huge. <laughs> and, you know, and we hear from people that, you know, that lost someone and they're saying like, you know, I had no idea I had to do these things. Like, I'm so glad that you're here. <laughs> yeah, um, it becomes a job in and of itself that could easily be like a full-time paid job for someone to take on to work through all, the, all of that. Oh, exactly. And so much of the anxiety, I mean, like our, our driving force as a company is like, how can we, how can we reduce the anxiety of the logistics? And one of the biggest things, right, is like, you don't know what you don't know. And so much of the anxiety after you lose someone is, Am I making the right decisions? Is this what they would have wanted? Am I forgetting something? Am I doing something legally wrong? Like you're dealing with all of these like legal and financial implications that you've never been familiar with before. And you know, even if we can make a product that that takes away that anxiety, so you can just focus on on your grief and managing that emotion and not also being like waking up in the middle of the night being like, oh my God, I forgot to do X, Y, and Z. You know, you shouldn't have to be worried about that process. That should be clear cut and easy for you. Yeah, I love all of it. Well, it sounds like everything's going extremely well for you since you guys have launched. Yeah, and you know, and right now, uh, you know, particularly with with COVID nineteen, we're growing a lot, um, and it's it's mostly people that are facing their mortality in a way that they never have before or have never allowed themselves to. And a lot of people are starting to do pre-plans. I think it's oddly enough, like, I, I mean, I, you know, I'd love to hear from people that are, are kind of going through our pre-plans um, right now. But from what we've heard from our users so far is that it, it's kind of, it's meditative, it's stress relief. It, it feels like, okay, I can't control when I'm going to die, but I can at least control how my family manages it and what my funeral is like and what paperwork I have in order. Like those are things you can control. And I always like to remind people that having a plan does not make you die. Like there's this weird thing. It's like, if you talk about death and somehow it makes it more, <laughs> you know, imminent or something. And I'm yeah. like, there is no correlation between a plan and dying. Yeah. It's definitely good to have, have a plan, especially as it relates to um, those topics, especially. You've obviously had an interesting professional career and continue to. So what advice would you give to someone who's just finishing up college or even in their like 20s trying to figure out what they want to do? What advice would you give them? And uh, equally, I guess, what advice should they ignore? Well, I think, you know, we kind of t touched on this earlier, but what you do right out of college does not dictate your life. And if you find that you don't love what you're doing and it's not making you happy, like you, you do have the ability to make those changes and those shifts. Not to say that they're going to come easily because finding work mm -hmm. is hard, but putting the pressure on yourself at a young age to think that you have to know exactly what you want for all of time is it's unnecessary and it's unrealistic. <laughs> like you're not, you're not going to know. So just, you know, choosing things that, that feel good for your heart right now or, that you feel like you can really learn from and can be stepping stones to other things. In terms of advice you shouldn't listen to, this like kind of answers your question, but there is this very strange pressure, I think, on young people right now that they have to start something and they have to start a business and they have to be entrepreneurs and they have to be, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or whoever it is. <laughs> and I think that's a beautiful thing in the sense that like I love that we're in an environment now where everyone really like believes that they can they can do what they dream and they can build towards it and create it. But on the flip side, I always try to remind people that like only do it if you're really passionate about it because it is not easy and if you are not completely and totally obsessed with your idea, no one else is going to be. 
And you've got to be the one that like gets yourself up in the morning and says like, yeah, I got rejected by 50 investors in the last 10 days, but I know that I can do this and I believe in myself and I'm going to keep going. (laughs) So if you're trying to build a company because you just, you know, you see like maybe like potential financial gain, I don't know that it's ever going to bring the joy you think it will. Mm. Yeah, I think also the pressure part, not even for people who are in college, but even out. I totally agree. People put so much pressure on themselves, like people who want to switch, potentially switch career paths. And they're like, Ooh, if I go left, if I take this new job, I don't know if I can, I don't know what my life will be like. But I always say you should just take the jump and see what happens. And if you don't, you can always go backwards, you can go forwards, you can go diagonal, you can always make a different move in another direction. Yeah. And if you're somebody who like makes yourself indispensable and works really hard to like, you'll be fine. <laughs> So I'm really starting this podcast to create a dialogue with people who face something significant in their life, some adversity, some obstacle, some tragedy, and despite that, have overcome and built a life that they're loving. They're basically waking up every day, living, stepping into their dream life. So I'm curious, that being said, what would be your advice to those listening on how to build the life of your dreams? I think it's so much about like following what makes your heart happy. That sounds like really vague in terms of what that means, but truly like if you can find work and find, and and maybe it's not work, honestly, for some people work is not their source of joy. It might be, you know, family or doing a triathlon or planning a trip or whatever it is, but just like following what makes your heart happy on a daily basis, even in small ways, I think is, that's how you build the life you love. And it might be in little parts. It doesn't have to be all at once. It doesn't have to be tomorrow, but it's just taking those little stabs at it until you get there. I love that. I especially love that you brought up that it doesn't have to be work. Because I definitely think people put so much pressure around it needs to be work or career. I mean, especially in major city like New York, people are so career oriented and focused on that. I think They forget that there's so many other key areas of life. Yeah, absolutely. Where can our listeners connect with you, find you, et cetera? Yeah, well, the site uh, is lantern.co.co, not .com. And um, and all of our social media is uh, follow lantern, so at follow lantern. All right, well, there you have it. Thanks so much for the time. This was great. Yeah, thank you. I love it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 